1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and our latest dive into the listener questions mailbag. On today's show, we're looking at the USMNT players who could improve Man United. We assess Jude Bellingham's status (sighs) as the world's best player. Don't cite that one, cite the Man United one, Taylor. (laughs) And we talk about the benefits of growing up in Norway. They are many. (laughs) They are legion. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, you just heard him interject all over my intro. Taylor Rockwell, hello.
2: Hello. Yes, I managed to avoid the weekend review episode when we had to talk about where you all had to talk about Manchester United losing to Manchester City, but we still get some Man United pain thrown into this one. So I'm here for it, sadly.
1: Sorry, the hand delved into the mailbag, Taylor. It's what came out. I accept. I accept. Excellent. There we go. Joining us to discuss it and much more, we
3: have Mr. Joe Lowry. Howdy, Joe. I I am doing quite well. Ryan, how are you? Ryan, how are you doing? Nobody ever asks you. Actually, Graham asks you quite frequently how you're doing, but I I don't usually ask you. How are you, Ryan?
1: Oh, my God, Joe. So nice of you to ask. I'm doing well. I split my pants when I sat down to do this
3: recording. Otherwise, I'm great. Nice. Well, I assume they're (laughs) Lululemon pants that are going to cost three hundred dollars to get replaced. Oh, Lululemon Pants wouldn't split, Joe. That's not ah, how they roll. My yeah. mistake. Lululemon Pants, Apple products, etc., etc. Right. If we ever get
2: them as a sponsor, is that like one of Ryan's crowning achievements on this program?
3: Yeah, I would be
1: very overstimulated. I don't know what I would do at that point. <laughs> yeah, it would be very fun indeed. Uh, hi, if you're listening, Canadian <laughs> apparel producer. Uh, no Graham Rutherford on this show, I'm afraid, guys. He's ill the, he's under the weather, the weather being heavy Graham? in that there, Glasgow. Graham? That never happens. Just kidding. Feel better, Feel better, Graham. Feel better, Graham. Feel better indeed. We hope you are doing well. Uh, eh, if you would I'm like, uh, I'm sure bonus uh, bonus content is aplenty from Graham Muzzin, however. He's probably put six videos on the Patreon <laughs> while we're recording. <laughs> Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you'd like to support us via that medium. Uh, there is bonus videos. There is bonus podcasts. There's also access to our discord where all the cool kids are hanging out and some less cool kids like me. Anyway, thank you very much for that. Taylor will say you, me and Joe get to some listener questions.
2: Kane? I'm into it. Although now I'm into the idea of Graham's like sick patreon video and it's just him laying on his Billy Gilmore sheets talking <laughs> through the process of buying Billy Gilmore sheets and like the different players he could have gone for all with the stuff he knows. I, I think that would be worth some content. I'd be into mm. that one.
1: I want to see Graham go to the bait tackle shop hairdressers slash pharmacy (laughs) to uh, get his remedies as well. That would be good.
2: It feels like he's moving on up. I think he separated that into at least three distinct different shopping
3: stops as opposed to just the one. Graham's forgetting his roots, and honestly, it's sad to see.
2: The middle
1: class is growing in the Total Soccer (laughs) Show. Good to see. Very good. All right, we go now to a listener question from Kyle Kinsey. Hello, Kyle. Thank you for getting in touch. Kyle asks, which USMNT players, assuming everybody is healthy, would be immediate upgrades at Manchester United. Taylor, we've gone straight in with the Man United question here. You're very welcome. I suppose the big
2: question is, can anyone supplant the majesty of Evans or Maguire? (laughs) It's interesting because I feel like centre-back is an area of need, especially because there are so many of them injured for Manchester United presently, and I know we're coming at this from a, if the US players were healthy, I'm not sure there's a centre-back that makes them instantly better. Joe, I want to ask you this. How many players, like what's the number you came up with?
3: I have one, two, three... Four and a half, Ooh. somewhere in that range? Okay. You, awesome so player. you are a
2: little more optimistic than I. I think I have three and a half. That so feels reasonable gonna, to me. We're we'll right some overlap. Yeah. I'm going to assume Jedi Robinson is on your list.
3: He is on my list. Yep. I have basically, they could use a healthy left back so we yep. can toss Jedi in there. I don't mm-hmm. think, to be clear, and this is why, maybe this is the half point. Nope. If their whole squad, is, Robinson, healthy, their the whole squad is healthy, if their whole squad is healthy, Jedi Robinson is probably not starting for Manchester United. Actually, let's upgrade that probably to a definitely. But right now, as a recording on thursday november 2nd that's what today is i i would say jedi robinson would help this team yes
2: yeah yeah i just assume that your jedi robinson bias was was going to show there and you were actually ah. going to argue for joe scally instead no, but uh, yes James. i had jedi and then i think the front three i think there's an argument that Pulisic, Wea and Balogun all make this team better as strange as that sounds i don't know if to the point of the question immediately if they're upgrades but i think tim Wea has proven himself to be coachable at international level coachable at club level and seems to be a player that can come in and really find some form play his way into a team so I feel like he could do that maybe not right away but in terms of Marcus Rashford at present playing on the left I don't think he's been very impressive and I think we could see Pulisic play there uh, and have some level of impact it's a signing I wouldn't have loved a season or two ago but nowadays I'm not sure I would hate it and then uh, Hoyland has been fine, but I think Balogun maybe gives him just yep. a little bit more push to perform and maybe supplants him outright.
3: Yeah, I've got Balogun. Balogun is the first player on my list. Uh, of Hoyland has zero goals in the Premier League so far this year. Balogun had significantly better underlying numbers from last year. Granted, in a worse in which league, league. Liga versus Serie A, right. worse league in my notes. Uh, so that is a factor here. But it, it's so hard for me to look at Falon Balogun's game and think Rasmus Hoyland is a better soccer player than he is. Granted, as well. Holand is younger, and so that's a real factor when you think about transfer value and, and how you want to uh, allocate roster resources. But, I mean, Balogun is is the better player right now. I don't think there's any question about that. I also have Polisic on my list, Taylor. I think he's an upgrade over everyone on the wing, and probably you know you can set aside Marcus Rasher when he's at his best, but he's not at his best right now. I also have Gio Reyna. I didn't have Tim Wea, but I have Gio Reyna. I think Gio Reyna is an upgrade over basically anybody in those half space spots or over Christian Eriksson. Now, Eriksson's sometimes been playing a bit deeper, sometimes on the, the side of a diamond. So maybe Gio Reyna doesn't fit exactly in that role. But if you look at a, a healthy Gio Reyna, and he is healthy right now, which is a good thing for Dortmund, and, and you look at this Manchester United team, they would absolutely take him. I don't know, and, and Kyle doesn't specify in the question, if we're talking about players that are jumping into the 11 or just into the squad, if it's the squad, Gio is definitely in there. If it's the 11, I think he's probably in there. And then you can also add Tim Weah. I think they take Sergino Des. They would take Tyler Adams if he was healthy. They would take like they would take a lot of these US players, but the only other one I have that could be a starter is Weston McKinney right now. I have a hard time believing that Scott McTominay is a better soccer, man, it's maybe a good thing that Graham isn't here, because I was expecting (laughs) backlash when I was initially prepping for this show, thinking Graham was gonna be here. I had a much longer argument prepared, but I don't think I need to go into it. I'm just gonna say, I don't think Scott McTominay is a better soccer player than Weston McKinney, and they generally can do similar things on the field, both big-bodied, can play in different roles, both probably better as more of an advanced midfielder. Weston McKinney is is just a straight-up better player than Scott McTominay right now, so he's on my list as well.
2: The only other player that I would throw in for consideration was Yunus Musa, But I think what we've seen from him at at Milan is having stability or relative stability in a stable coach has allowed him to, I think, improve in some areas and also identify the areas where there is still considerable room for development. I think if you threw him into Manchester United, there's so much chaos at that club right now on and off the pitch. I don't think it makes him better. I think that chaos probably means that he is a utility player getting thrown into random moments in random games and random spots. And I don't think it allows him to develop consistently the way he needs to to make that jump to be the player who could have an impact at Manchester United. And I kind of think that goes for a lot of the midfield options for the U.S. Like Tyler Adams would be on that list. Joe, you've made compelling arguments in the past about him when it comes to progressive passing and progressive carries and how that is something that he doesn't really have in his skill set and that is something i think manchester united really need from their defensive midfielder they're not really getting it but i don't know if that's going to be adams and mckenny is is a confusing one i understand why he was probably your half player joe because i could see how he does fit the team i could also see how he is just sort of going to do uh scott McTominay things maybe at a higher level but still i'm not sure that makes them better i'm not sure that like necessarily moves him into that starting 11 but i see why you have him included
1: Okay, Taylor. I'm going to extend out the question. I'm going to throw the grenade in the room and run away for the coach. Uh, which, where, where do they both sit on the bald fraud index right now? Do we think?
2: <laughs> I uh, all right. So I am probably being too generous, uh, and a lot of this is informed by. I feel like Eric Ten Hag. I long felt like he was the smart coach, a smart hire, could get the best out of them, could kind of have them playing an identifiable style. I understand the criticism then is what is the identifiable style? There isn't one right now. And he has not done a great job of creating harmony. You look at other managers who have had success and kind of hit the ground running. Ange Postecoglou is the, prim- the primary name on that front. There are reasons to criticize Eric Ten Hag. I still think everything with that club right now is so chaotic from the front office down. And I think when you have Sir Jim Ratcliffe coming in and it seems like being inclined to just clear the entire front office on the footballing side of things, I can see how no one really feels secure. No one really feels safe, including Ten Hag. I do think he might've been sacked already if the Ratcliffe takeover weren't happening. And I think that would have been a mistake. And so I think he's one who is sort of treading water until that front gets stabilized and then we'll see what happens. But in the meantime, it feels to me that he's been left with a sort of try this, try that, see what sticks, see what doesn't. It's kind of the worst position to be in as a manager. You're desperately trying to figure something out that could work while you're losing games and games that you can't really afford to lose. So, I I, I think I still have plenty of faith in Eric Ten Hag. I would definitely rather him him be the manager of Manchester United than Greg Berhalter, though I like Greg Berhalter as a coach. Uh, I don't think either one of them are fully bald frauds, uh, but I think there is definitely reason for concern uh, if you are an Eric Ten Hag fan, and then if you are a Manchester United fan, especially so.
3: Yeah, I, I wouldn't make that swap either right now if I was calling the shots at Manchester United. What I will say is I don't think there's a single manager on the planet that could get this squad in its current state to being a legitimate Premier League title contender. Like, I don't think that person exists, and I think there's probably three to five people on the planet who could get them into the Champions League spots in the Premier League right now. Granted, they're operating at a deficit now that the season's already started, but they're currently an eighth in the Premier League. They have all sorts of problems. We've talked about ad nauseum at this point. I think outside of an Ange Postacoglu-level managerial talent, and it really does feel like Postacoglu is sort of elevating himself before our eyes into the elite of the elite category, the peps, the klops of the world. outside of that person coming to take over, I don't even think you're cracking the top three or four.
2: And and even there, I agree. And even there, I think the only person who could do that would be Pep because he commands such respect that no matter how much you're paid, how big your ego is, I think you have to humble yourself a little bit if if Pep is coming in. Whereas even somebody like Klopp, I think Klopp after Moyes maybe, if they had hired him then in an alternate reality, I think that could have been a success because... There was that humbling. There was that feeling of, oh, no, this has gone wrong. We are not where we used to be. We need someone to kind of turn us around with vision and, and, and foresight. And we're going to buy into his identity. Nowadays, it doesn't really feel like that's possible with this current squad because there is so much bloat. There is so much dissatisfaction. Jaden Sancho is a prime example of this. I think Pet might be the only manager who could theoretically do that. Short of that, I think you're still going to have a lot of the same issues as you're seeing at present.
1: Wonderful stuff. <laughs> or not, if as it were. Thank you very much, Kyle, for that question. We go now to Richard Rawson. Hello, Richard. With the World Cup coming in 2026 and it being an expanded format, will MLS need to look into ways where they're not playing during the summer. Would it make sense for MLS to consider a Liga Amechi-style system of two seasons an and Apertura and Clausura, so they would free up the summer months? Couldn't Apertura and Clausura structure make regular season games more important? Joe, how do we feel about this? Obviously, the MLS season's already kind of bisected now by the League's Cup. Um, you know, maybe we get a, a, a two-league system and we have two climaxes instead of one. That's generally better in my re- <laughs> thoughts.
3: Yay? <laughs> no? Nah? Yeah. You want to keep going or, or, should I don't know I, where, or should I I, I don't go? know why I said that. Keep going, right. Joe. I'll go. So the World Cup, there's a couple different parts of this, Richard, and I, I appreciate the question. The World Cup is set to last for 39 days this time around. It's going to be in June and July. It's going to be a week longer than in 2018 and 10 days longer than 2022, I don't know about you guys, but I felt every day of the last tournament being shortened, I felt every one of those three days of (laughs) it getting three days shorter from 2018 to 2022. This one will be longer. Uh, I don't think it makes a ton of sense based off of the World Cup, like if that's your sole motivation to go to this Apertura-Clausura format, more on that in a second, but MLS, Ryan, you mentioned it, already paused for just about 30 days this past summer for League's Cup. So the obvious solution if you're Major League Soccer trying to figure out your schedule for the World Cup on your home soil is that you skip Leagues Cup. Like I genuinely don't see a way to keep Leagues Cup and the World Cup in the same calendar year when they're gonna overlap based on what we've already seen. It doesn't make any sense. Like there's no way that you can actually have have all of those things and still have a legitimate regular season competition. So I'll just say it now, I'll be shocked if we get a Leagues Cup in its current format in the summer months, or, or maybe even one at all by the time 2026 rolls around. As far as would the apertura classura, for folks that don't know, I think Richard laid it out well in his question, but two seasons followed by two playoffs, and there's a break in the middle, right? That's how Liga Mekis does their their season. As far as would that make regular season games more important? Yes, and credit to you, Taylor. You've talked about this multiple times in the past. Less leeway with half the time to get above the playoff line equals more intensity. Like that equation is fairly straightforward and I think it's a very legitimate one. I'm not sure if it's worth doing from a regular season perspective, even setting aside the World Cup, given that it makes the bar to entry and understanding even higher for the casual American sports fan than it already is to get into Major League Soccer if you're a fan of other sports and maybe just a casual general soccer fan. But I'm not sure it's not worth doing either. Like I, I think it has some merit, the concept has merit and it would have a positive impact on the regular season and you, you get more playoffs or at least playoffs at different times, which also has value. But at least as it relates to the World Cup, I think you just get rid of League's Cup that year and you're pretty much good to go. Um,
2: forgive me, Discord listeners uh, and supporters. I cannot remember who it was who was making the argument that, like... Uh Changing the rules of the playoffs every season is potentially a good thing because it allows for variation, it allows for, for experimentation, but also if you don't like it one year, they're going to do something different the next year. And I'm kind of into the idea that in 2026, when we are going to have this break, when there are going to be so many games, when there's going to be, let's say, a massive amount of enthusiasm for the sport, but then after the World Cup final, that might taper off a little bit. I do see the appeal of splitting the season in two. I think Clausura Apertura is really interesting, and I would like them to try that. But in this case, what I think could be interesting is if you did an abbreviated MLS regular season with an abbreviated playoffs leading up to the tournament, and then maybe you had a week break, and then people were reporting for camps, and then after the World Cup, we did an even bigger leagues cup where you have like like US and uh, Mexican teams thrown together. You have like a larger round robin that is almost sort of. A, a division of sorts and you play different teams and then you have like a, a an expanded playoff tournament with two different leagues participating and you made that the second half of the season it's gimmicky but i also kind of feel like that's a good way to keep interest and if you've just had the 2026 world cup with three host nations if you have mls with their canadian teams and then Liga MX thrown in there you're sort of continuing that and i can see how you can have some some sort of Uh, consistency from one tournament to the next. So I I do like the idea of doing one competition, the World Cup, and then something else to follow. I don't know if I want it to be regular season playoffs, World Cup, regular season playoffs, break, and then we start it back over again.
1: Taylor, do we think there's ever going to be a scenario in the future, let's call it 10 years, 15 years, where MLS switches to the European-style winter calendar?
3: Nope. Agreed.
1: (laughs) I know my name's not
2: Taylor. Sorry. Go ahead, Taylor. Joe, why do you say that so emphatically? I agree. But I, I, I think like, j- I'd like to hear your more well-thought-out reasons first.
3: I think people don't understand how difficult the weather is in, in the disparity in weather from the top of this country to the bottom, from one side to the other. I I, I have such a difficult time believing that you could build a, a legit schedule that involves you playing games through the winter months. I know the Bundesliga does it. They have a lot of other resources and logistical benefits on their side that the country the size of the United States does not have. And they also have different stadium infrastructure as well. So I, I'm not saying this is impossible at any point down the line, but in the time horizon that you gave, Ryan, 10 to 15 years, I mean, like, we're yeah. just going to be on MLS team number 34 at that point. Like, you know, we, we won't have made that much progress <laughs> by the time Ooh. that comes
1: around. <laughs> yeah, flo- floating stadiums, though, Joe, um, where the climate doesn't affect them as much. Yeah,
3: in my head, that's a, once you've figured out sort of um, cryogenesis and all the stasis stuff, that's more of like a 3,000 thing rather than like a twenty twenty. Four kind of thing.
2: I thought we'd agreed on shield helicarriers that we're just putting football pitches on top of, and then we'd have them kind of fly around from place to place.
3: The lines are blurry, Taylor, between okay. those things. I'll be honest. Uh,
2: but yeah, I agree with Joe about the weather. And then I would add, I think from a scheduling standpoint, it feels like MLS is actively avoiding having to go up against the more conventionally big and popular American sports until the fall when it's basically MLS playoffs running up against regular season games and the start of the NBA season and things like that. If you have them overlapping fully, I think you could see a somewhat sizable hit to viewership and attendance figures just because there's going to be so much competition there. I think that's less of a concern than, as Joe pointed out, the weather when you have Minnesota trying to play in January. I think we're going to run into some problems pretty fast. I don't even know if Matt Turner's gotten over his frostbite yet from the one time he tried to do that.
1: Is, is Minnesota in January worse than Miami in July in terms of weather Ye- extremity?
3: Yes. I, I think my thought is it's generally a... easier to control for the heat and for the humidity than it is to control for the cold. Like You don't have to treat the field in the same way. You can provide hydration breaks. You can't you can't make the games go faster when it's in Minnesota in February.
2: I do agree with you broadly, Ryan, though. I think I would rather be cold than way too hot. Uh, but when it comes to playing, and, and at least from like an attendance standpoint and getting everybody involved, I mean, games in the snow are always going to have a, a special appeal on broadcast. But I think for the 15 feet of snow that you might have to remove for a Minnesota game, or a New England game for that matter, uh, I think you could run into some problems pretty quickly.
1: Fair dues. All right. Thank you, Richard, for that question.
2: We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking to Bellingham. Yay! Back shortly. Hey, folks. This is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be... So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS, to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mac Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total
1: Soccer Show, we are answering listener questions, as you're aware, because you didn't start the episode 20 minutes in, listener. Thank you for joining us on this one. Matt Adler has been in touch and has asked Has Jude Bellingham joined the Haaland and Mbappé tier of the best players in the world? And is there anyone else we would consider on that tier? Now, Taylor, um, as a little uh, spoiler alert for the feed, tomorrow on the feed we're going to be talking all about Mr. Bellingham, but uh, your (gasps) thoughts on the premise
2: here? Um, Yes, and I will acknowledge that that episode informs my answer because I answered this before I started really doing my Jude Bellingham research. And my answer prior to that research was, I think so. And then if he finishes the season in even somewhat an approximation of his current form, then I would say definitely after doing the research, after watching more of him, after reading more about how he has developed as a player, I would say, yes, he is in that category for me. He is one of those top three to four to five, but I think it really is a top three players in the world right now.
3: Okay. Uh, Joe, what are your thoughts? So based on his current form, absolutely. But I do think the answer to this question will be different In three or four or five months. So my my thought, and and again, we'll get into this more on the big thing. My thought is his scoring rate is not sustainable. He scored an unfathomable amount of goals in a ridiculously small amount of time. Ryan, I've got this one for you. Joe, Uh, how dare you? Yeah, Yeah. okay. Glad we got that out of the way. He's not going to keep up this scoring form. He will keep up a ridiculous scoring rate for a midfielder still. But he is scoring at the level of an Mbappe and an Erling Holland right now. That is not going to continue. I would bet the farm on that right now. I also think there's a a natural uh, disadvantage that midfielders have in this conversation compared to forwards. Forwards are so valuable because scoring goals is the hardest thing to do in this sport. And Mbappe and Holland will end this season with more goals than Jude Bellingham. You can also bet the farm on that. Like, they're going to score more goals. They have an advantage because they're closer to goal. That's the entirety of their job, essentially, is to go out there and score goals. I think Jude Bellingham, with how versatile he is, he's an incredible player. I don't want anybody to get me wrong on that. He is an absolutely phenomenal, almost complete midfielder who is good at so many things on and off the ball. But I think he's at a disadvantage because, number one, he is a midfielder. And number two, I I don't believe that he's going to keep up this form or or really something all that close to it. I have him, though, in sort of that next tier down. I think about Mbappe and Holland, And I would add Messi in there. Like if if you're talking about a player I want on my team to win a game today, Messi is absolutely still in that category for me. Then he falls out if you talk about, well, this is maybe to build a team for the next five years or something like that. right? Messi's longevity is going to be a problem there. But I take Mbappe and Holland if I'm going to have a team that I need to win a game tomorrow. And then Bellingham's in that next tier along with maybe Harry Kane and Robert Lewandowski, maybe a couple of the Man City midfielders when they're fully healthy. I think he's right on the cusp, Jude Bellingham, for me, of that next tier underneath the top. I think I would agree with Joe. The only thing I I would add
2: is that We we do tend to get that sort of form is temporary thing of like last year, I feel like Vinicius was the story of how good he was, how unplayable he was at times, how he was winning games single-handedly for Real Madrid. And I think I probably would have put him in that category maybe back then. Nowadays, I'm not sure if that's the case. And so you do get that sort of up and down aspect of footballers who are in a great run of form. The only thing and the reason why I stress that after doing the research, I sort of raised my estimations a little bit, is just how much Bellingham has adapted his game. And so, yes, Joe, maybe he doesn't continue this goal-scoring rate because it is pretty ridiculous, but I think he continues to improve and I think he continues to find ways to meaningfully contribute to Real Madrid, even if it's not in goals. I do also think the way they're utilizing him puts him in positions to score, and it's a big reason why he has been doing so so consistently. But I think it's that development and that versatility And then a lot of other off-field stuff that kind of blend together to make him this very unique player that I think will stay at a high level for some time. Of course, after we've done this episode and then the Big Thing episode, he will tear his ACL this weekend. So that is (laughs) the downside to all of this, and I do apologize in advance.
3: I had MCL down in my notes, weirdly, Taylor, but I think we're Uh, we're pretty much on the same page there. I I agree with basically everything you just said. The only thing that I, I think we're maybe slightly off on between the two of us is... I don't know if that's enough to put him level with Mbappe and Holland. Like, I, I think because Bellingham has stolen so much of the narrative spotlight and because he's the new shiny toy, and and he should be, right? Like, what he's done has been absolutely absurd. Because he is that, I think Mbappe and Holland, almost people have already forgotten how good they are. Like, people are bored of Manchester City because they won the treble last year. We kind of know what Holland's going to do, and he's going to do it for the next 8, 10 years, whatever it's going to be. PSG has not been very good this season, and Mbappe has the problem of playing in Ligue 1, so he's not benefiting from that narrative spotlight either. People have forgotten how good those players are. People have forgotten yeah, already how good Leo true. Messi is because he's been hurt. He's not been playing a ton of Major League Soccer, and Miami are bad, and we still don't really know what it's like having him play in Major League Soccer. And of course, he's more out of sight, out of mind there as well. So I think it's easy to get carried away on the narrative side of things right now, And I I try not to do that. It's hard, though. Like, I'll be honest, it's really, really hard because he is incredible. But there's a lot of good soccer players on the planet. I think Bellingham's better than most of them. I just don't think he's quite as valuable as the Mbappes and Hollands of the world, which is just Mbappé and Holland, by the way. And
2: I think that 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 is, I appreciate that change from the pluralization to the singular. (laughs)
3: Uh, I think that's
2: a fair point. And I I think maybe if we're splitting the difference here, then I would say I look at the year that Modric won the Ballon d'Or, and that feels like a possibility for, for Bellingham that yes, not competing with goal scorers like Holland or Mbappe. But when you look at overall importance to both his club team and his national team, if England have a very good euros and if Bellingham keeps up again, even some semblance of this form throughout the whole season, it'll be an interesting Ballon d'Or nomination process, in my opinion, because I think that would be very representative of what got Luka Modric to that point. Plus I think a little bit of a lifetime achievement award because he's quite good. Uh, And maybe also the fact that we're talking about his heir apparent, Luka Modric, when it comes to Real Madrid, all factors into that one. But I think you're right. I think it probably is Holland and Mbappe because they're going to score the goals all the time and they're going to get the headlines all the time. And then maybe Bellingham is just underneath them right now, but I still think he has come a long way pretty quickly
1: yeah i think also taylor you mentioned the ballon d'or there i think the new rules for the voting of the ballon d'or actually works favorably for jude bellingham as well because if i'm not mistaken it's now voted on by uh, a journalist from each of the top 100 fifa nations mm-hmm. but the criteria are now for the season rather than the calendar year so mm-hmm. it will look at this current season for his uh, performance his um his team's performance and also for the Next season, it will look at his um, behavior and fair play. And he's a lovely boy, so he's going to definitely win that category as well. So
2: I you, I'm- I think you left off one part of the new voting requirements, which is all of what you said. Just then, at the end, Lionel Messi wins. That's how it works. You forgot about that key part.
1: There is that. There is yes. that, of course. There is that consideration to take. Um, but, Joe, on, on your take, I really appreciate your nuanced look at this. But are you telling me...
2: If you take a snapshot... <laughs> that was delivered in a way that tells me Ryan does not really appreciate that no, I nuance at all. I was just
1: waiting for the button. I was waiting for it. I agree with everything you said. It's, very, it's, a, it's, a, it's a balanced and fair take. But if you take a snapshot on today, as we recall, Thursday, November 2nd, are you telling me that Jude Bellingham isn't in that top bracket right now? You don't have to look yes. at the, the landscape
3: of the season yep. now if if listeners want to hit the backward 32nd button like four times um and Ryan I wish you could do that in this moment the first oh. thing i said was right now based on his current form absolutely the all difference right. is if we base all these takes off of current form i really wish i could think of a player who got ho- oh here we go this is a good one matthew hoppy when he was scoring like hat tricks for schalke that one season he he was in the conversation for best one week in the of world. that one season yeah that yeah. one week of that one season and <laughs> yeah. then you know all, all these fake rumors to bayern munich started popping up like we, we can't do that. We can't do that stuff. You have to zoom out and be more rational about this. And Bellingham has obviously done it for longer than Matthew Hoppy has, and he's a better player than Matthew... Man, Matthew Hoppy. sorry. didn't mean to get you in the vault in this conversation. <laughs> he's obviously a very, very good player. Um, the difference is I, I just... I don't buy, and I don't think any of us should buy that he's going to score a goal every 86 minutes for the rest of his career or even for the rest of this season.
1: Fair enough. All right. Thank you very much, Matt, for that question. We go now to Jake Weiss, who says... I was watching Milan v Juventus and having not watched much soccer other than the Premier League, I was surprised at the amount of in-stadium advertising that is in English. Is this common in non-English speaking countries? Now, I don't know how much uh, you guys are aware of this kind of thing and marketing and advertising spend and whatnot, but it's it I'd say as a, as a top line answer, it is pretty typical. And in Italy, having lived there, it's not typical for English advertising to be on the street outside of soccer. It's very atypical. But obviously, they're appealing to English speaking territories. There's strategic areas which the league wants to grow in. And, you know, that's the same for all the top leagues. And I'll say, Taylor, it's interesting that if you look at Premier League advertising, conversely, in recent years, a lot of the in-stadium advertising isn't in English. A lot of it is aimed at uh, Asian bookmakers and Asian businesses as well. So it goes both ways.
2: Well, as I understand it, it depends on where you're watching, especially when it comes to the Premier League. Joe, Mm. did you find something similar?
3: I am staring at a headline right now that says, did you know that the stadium ads we're seeing on TV aren't really there? That's one part of this. And also ad boards that can look different and display Mm -hmm. different messages based off of the country. Taylor continued.
2: Yep. virtual replacement perimeter technology which allows uh, broadcasters to basically show different advertisers on those sideline advertisements based on where the person is viewing and even based on how they're viewing. So if you're streaming it might be different than if you are watching a conventional broadcaster because there they can sort of geolocate you to a specific region Uh, and so you get that in the Premier League. I think they were the ones to first start it around 2017 and I believe Serie A has followed suit and some of that is just to expand their commercial footprint some of that is i think to appeal to an american audience because of the paramount deal we've seen paramount advertising on shirts and on the sides of games and uh, on buses on the way to games Uh, and so i think there is probably a combination of the advertisements themselves being able to be adjusted to reflect who's watching and where and then simultaneously i think there is an appeal from syria to try to get more american viewers on board
1: yeah, what a world we live in, Joe. Crazy stuff. I think uh, that technology is prevalent, but it's not the case in every broadcast. Right? But yes, mm-hmm. it is. A uh, it's certainly coming along. And uh, I think wasn't there some early instances where sort of players disappeared into yep. it when it first came? <laughs> Somebody in and... was beheaded, I think, very <laughs> yeah. briefly. Yeah. This yeah. Th-
3: this technology in my head is somehow conflated with the sort of the beginning of the pandemic, and then we get into the MLS's back tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, may it rest in peace, but also never come back and we get the Adidas logo superimposed on the field for n- no reason other than Adidas wanted that to happen. Like all of these image altering on-screen technologies are sort of all wrapped up into one in that moment as I'm watching the MLS's back tournament. What I will say is Ryan, you're right. These are not everywhere. There's also, you know, part of this and you kind of got to this in your opening, Ryan. English is a common denominator in a lot of these especially European countries. You go to Italy and you speak English, they will understand you and they probably will be able to respond to you. I I, I think you go to a lot of these places and that's the language that is sort of splitting the difference, even if it's not an official language. I read part of a paper on this sort of advertising idea that English is used as an attention grabber and it's also used to grab, uh, excuse me, to add some international flair to some of these products. So that's not necessarily just a soccer thing, right? That can be more of a, a, a big picture marketing advertising thing. But as far as Jake's question, is it common in non-English-speaking countries for there to be advertising in English? For a variety of reasons, I would say yes, it is fairly common. It is
1: indeed. Jake, thank you very much for that question. Very interesting. Taylor, anything to add on there before we jump away?
2: Just that my experience of trying to order in Italy while trying to speak Italian usually lasted about three seconds before the server would say, like, you can do it in English, in unaccented English. Uh, So I like the idea of the in-stadium ads starting in, like, broken italian and then be like never mind we're doing english and then just switching to english that would feel more uh, at home with my experience
1: oh honey i'm so sorry you had that experience <laughs> did you just try to speak louder in english is that what you did i think i just like
2: was ashamed and turned bright red and just pointed <laughs> at the menu like i'm sorry i wasted your time i didn't mm-hmm. mean to
1: Pizza <laughs> <back here. laughs>
2: okay. Uh, Jake, thank you
1: very much for that question. Excellent stuff. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking prize money, and we're talking about the
2: best nations to grow up in to be a soccer superstar. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win
3: exclusive NBA prizes, and experiences like official gear courtside seats
2: to an nba game and more head over to michelopeultra.com slash courtside to learn more total soccer show welcome back to our listener questions ian
1: brady back in the listener questions mailbag ian's getting more prevalent excellent question standard ian congratulations here's another one is there a limit to the prize money a tournament can offer either for club or country, For example, could NWSL run an open women's tournament that had a $5 million prize, if that's big, to entice the best European or Mexican teams to join? How about the same for US soccer, offering a large prize for She Believes and expanding it to eight teams? I'm guessing FIFA has rules, etc. I was wondering if there are ways to elevate the attendance and the meaning of some of those games. Uh, Talia, feel free to spend other people's money.
2: Go. <laughs> All right. Uh, well... To the FIFA international side of things, I think the major obstacle would be uh, making them dates when clubs have to release players. I think that's always going to be the tricky one there. If you're trying to make it an official competition or one that allows or forces clubs to release players, that is probably the major hurdle for then having more teams that she believes. Uh, and then especially when you're running up against scheduling uh obstacles of euros and euro qualifying and whatever else might be preventing european teams from participating uh but short of that i i don't believe there is any sort of uh roadblock in place for what you want to offer in terms of prize money i think oftentimes it's just sort of what makes commercial and financial sense i do think there would be some hesitation for nwsl to open it up and then have european teams come in and potentially wipe the floor with them i think like there might be some hesitation from i'm not even saying that would happen but i think there would be some concern of if we demonstrate in a very public way that our teams are not at the level that we sort of talk about them as being i could see that being a problem uh but but i i think overall to the point of the question you could do that and i think that would be very cool and a very good way for a company to basically take a drop out of their advertising budget and simultaneously offer the biggest prize in women's sports let's say
1: yeah i think joe taylor's hit on the on the uh, crux of the answer here in that it has to make financial and commercial sense to offer a big prize there has to be the revenue to come in i don't know joe if you ever remember movie pass the cinema
2: going past. What, it <laughs> what was do like? you think the answer <laughs> to that
1: question is? It wasn't that long ago. It was okay. not that long
2: ago. All right. <laughs> it was and it but was those, and it was such a, Ryan, I want you to finish that. I just <laughs> it was such an idea that like I remember hearing about it and being like, well that's not gonna work at all. Mm. Like how how is that possible? And even when you hear the full pitch it's still like yeah. that you're going to lose what you're just trying to get bought, aren't you? That's what you're trying to do here. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so I had a movie pass, and it was great. I think it was ten bucks a month,
1: and you could go Joe and see unlimited movies at any cinema, basically. And it transpired reasonably quickly that movie pass were losing money on every single ticket because yeah. tickets cost more than ten bucks a go. And I was going like five times a month. I was having a lovely time on movie passes behalf. Um, but that, that's a long way of saying like you can't offer the big prize unless you can make financial sense at the end yes. goal.
3: Yes, I love that. I love that illustration. Props to you, Ryan, for taking full advantage of that. Um, I think you were right to do so. The other part of this, I'll add, because I, I think you guys have obviously hit the nail on the head from the business perspective. In in terms of some of the properties that Ian mentions in the question, so NWSL I, is sort of you know roughly attached to this, and U.S. soccer certainly is. Like these things, logistically, are complicated as well, just from an organizational standpoint and and finding teams. And Taylor, you got to a bit of that. The calendar differences, thinking about the NWSL. Like, those teams and top European teams play at different times. The schedules are not the same. It's, you know, we already talked about schedules early on in this show for American soccer. It's hard to find, then, a great window to have a fantastic tournament that's going to have the best women's soccer teams from all over the world. And the incentive for them, let's be honest, the, the European teams at least, they've got the best women's soccer competition in the world. The end of the Champions League and even earlier stages are awesome. Like that is the best quality women's soccer you're going to see is in either games between elite teams in those leagues or between those teams from different countries in the Champions League. There's not a lot of incentive and I know that's what Ian's getting at with this question, but it would have to then tie back into the things that you guys already mentioned. A couple of other things. We've already seen the Women's International Champions Cup. I don't think that exists anymore. Uh, But to do something larger on that scale would require real legitimate cooperation, probably not just between clubs, but between leagues. We have seen this with Leagues Cup on the men's side with MLS and League MX. It's not impossible, uh, but as the the women's game, again, at club level continues to grow in Europe, they need the United States less and less. And I think even setting aside the money part of this, it, it just makes it really difficult to put anything grand together.
1: Uh, Taylor, a dark thought has come into my mind. Could mm. there be a scenario, let's do another 10 or 15 years time, where Saudi Arabia... Uh, says, we will host the Champions League, and our teams will play in it. There's going to be a $500 million prize. What say you, UEFA? Would they be
2: hosting the final or every game? Oh, as much as they want. They'll buy what they want. I mean, I think th- I think there's a pretty realistic possibility they host the Champions League final sometime in the next five years. I feel like that's... With the amount of money they could offer, I, I feel like that would definitely... Be a thing that they could do. And then I think with them likely to get 2030 or 2034, excuse me, uh, I think that's also something that they might want to do to continue to kind of increase the eyes on the sport in the country.
1: I think also in terms of having their teams join them to get the buy in from UEFA members, I think offering a gargantuan prize for the winner is going to be pretty tempting, isn't it?
2: Yep, I think so. And then then really, I mean, they have the financial capability to have that also just trickle down to every team that qualifies or participates in qualifying gets some level of money. I think money goes a long way towards making things happen, for sure.
1: Uh, Great. Okay, glad I brought that up. Ian, thank you very much for that question. We got one more here from Kathleen Porter. This is a good one. Here we go. This question is from my son, H, who's a huge fan of the pod. Hello, H. Thank you very much for listening. We appreciate you. Uh, H says, I am eight years old. I'm an eight-year-old goalkeeper growing up in London who wants to play pro football or soccer one day. I have three citizenships, USA, UK and Norway. In regards to chances with pro soccer goalkeeping, where do you think I should grow up? And a follow-up question, which country in the world do you think is the best to grow up in for soccer? Um, First of all, Joe, uh, I think that's an incredible gift that H has to have three Mm -hmm. different citizenships and to have that kind of freedom. That's wonderful to have. Uh, It's a very tricky question as to where one would have the greatest chances uh, with pro soccer goalkeeping. You could make the argument that, um, you know, Norway has a smaller population, greater chance of success, etc. That, you know, the US system is beneficial in some ways. Where are you landing on this one?
3: So first of all, H, thanks for listening. That's super cool, and I, I love yeah. getting to, to know a bit about you, and, and that's awesome. So we appreciate you listening. Second of all, my answer to this question is England. I think it's England to both of the parts of the question. So both about great, a, a, great. A goalkeeping. The
1: not UK, by the way. England mm-hmm. is what he I said.
3: did. Thank I you. did say England and England specifically, not just for the goalkeeping side of things, although that is a part here, but also just to grow up in as far as a, a soccer or football culture goes. I'll I'll admit having just been in England not too long ago. I am I'm jealous of how much a part of the culture and community soccer is there. Like that, that's not a thing. I, it is till I know it is a bit more for you because you play often in. rich I don't I don't really play a lot. I don't have that same idea. Soccer is still very much growing and trying to find its footing in Phoenix in particular, which is a giant city, but it's super spread out and, and the population density is not very high. It's just a night and day difference, to be honest with you. I, I don't know exactly what it's like in Norway. I don't have the same experience there, but it's so easy for me to see even from afar how synonymous soccer is with the culture in England. And Ryan, you can obviously speak to that better than I can, but England produces a ton of professional soccer players at all sorts of different levels. They have you know a ton of resources that's probably closer to where you are right now than you know finding a good resource would be in any given place in the United States in terms of the literal distance from you to that resource. So, yeah, I'm going England on both parts here.
2: Yeah, Uh, it's it is a much trickier question to to answer satisfactorily than I thought it would be, Uh, because I did sort of think immediately the UK was the answer. But I can kind of think of drawbacks for every single one of them. I think for the United States, goalkeeper is an established position in American soccer where I think the rest of the world maybe looks down on an American number 9 or an American number 10, less so an American goalkeeper. That is one where I think clubs will take a risk on a player. Matt Turner is a good example of that. Um, Gabriel Slonina, another example. I mean, you can point to many, many, many throughout history. But at the same time, pay to play. It's harder to make the jump from America to Europe. It's a bigger country. You can fall through the cracks more readily. And, And so I think there are plenty of positives for the United States. I, I don't have them top of the list. I actually think I ended up leaving Norway, yes. though that one remains the one that I am least familiar with. I have Norwegian cousins. They very much enjoyed growing up in Norway. I think military service is compulsory there, so you might want to check on that one. Uh, but with England, the, the problem that I kind of couldn't get away from is, and I'm sure it has changed, but I know people who took their kids for trials over there and and – And some had success, but a lot of them were surprised by how conventional the thinking is when it comes to youth players. So if you are a goalkeeper and you're not going to be above six foot, you're not going to be a goalkeeper and they're not going to want to pick you up. If you're a smaller player, there's going to be concerns about can you handle the physicality? And the prime example that always comes to mind is um, Sunderland are not a very good example of a well-run club. But there's Mm -hmm. that scene in Sunderland Till I Die when a scout is watching a player and he's wearing gloves And the scout says, nah, he's not what we need. If he's wearing gloves, if he's concerned about the cold, that shows you he doesn't have the toughness. And I think that's just such a ridiculous, outdated way of seeing things. And so you can run into that sort of outdated model of recruiting and scouting. But you could also run into somebody who recognizes you're a very good goalkeeper. I would say... Broadly speaking, don't just play goalie because so many clubs want people who can pass the ball and and play with their feet and and you know do different things and I remember at my club level our goalies were always playing in the field. We rarely did. I think they would have like one practice of the 3 each week that was just goalkeeper focused and the other ones they were in the field playing at times and then when we went to full field scrimmages they'd go in goal, but don't just sort of limit yourself to just being a goalkeeper and only developing those skills. Is my broader Uh, argument. And then my final point as to why I landed on Norway is because they're in the EU and it allows you to move around much more readily. If there are opportunities elsewhere that you want to explore, you can do so. And I also know people who lived in Belgium, but moved to Germany or moved to Austria because there were footballing opportunities there. Uh, There are going to be requirements and regulations about youth and how old you have to be to move and what sort of allows your players to your parents to move with you or to move in the first place. But I still think that is a A very strong mark in the positive column for Norway. And then to Ryan's point, smaller population, uh, more protections in place, military service. Check that one out. Uh, But I I do think it probably would be a nice place to grow up right up until winter hits and then you don't go outside for six months. But whatever, that's fine.
1: I mean, if you wanted to get into a death metal band, it'd be much harder, much more competition in Norway than in the other two countries. i say that much. I don't.
2: Do you think Norway beats the United States in death metal? I feel like we're, we're going toe to toe on that. Per one. capita.
1: Per capita. <laughs> I would oh, say well, then definitely. yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I don't think Norway's in the EU, by the way. I'm going to put that out there. I think they're in the uh, Schengen area, but maybe not the EU. Ah,
2: OK. I
1: might be wrong. Uh, anyway, uh, some solid points there. I would say. In my opinion, the uh, and with all due respect, I think the US might be the least goodest of the options as well. Mainly because my reservation is about pay to play and in general, if you don't have the financial means, you generally don't make it in the US. I think it's fairer to say than in other nations. Um feel free to push back on that. But uh, I think I I think H I would I would agree with Joe's initial outline that H is in a good spot being in London at the moment, if that's fair to say. But yeah. a lot of competition, but um, culture's there uh and the pathway is there
2: yeah and with the size combined with the culture like i I think if you are at a club and it just feels like ah they're developing me in a way that i don't really want to be developed or they seem to be overlooking me because i don't have the size or i don't have this or i don't have that i think it's much easier to go and try and get different trials with other clubs in the vicinity whereas i do think in the united states if you're playing for a club for a couple years and it doesn't feel like it's working it is much harder to then go find another club playing at the same level or higher uh, with relative ease without having to drive 40, 50, 60, 70 miles to do so. So I think there is probably an ease in moving around and having different experiences in London versus in the United States.
1: Indeed. And by the way, H, I just said least goodest. Don't say that when you're in your schooling. That was just... A- a quirk of my speech, <laughs> uh. <laughs> K- Kathleen. Thank you very much for that question submitted on your
2: son's behalf, Taylor. We've listened. A question. How are you feeling? Good episode, right? Good. Episode. I feel good, other than to remind H that enjoy being eight, and 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 you know maybe wait till you're like thirteen to really decide if you want to be a professional. Before that, just enjoy it, man. It's fun. Now score some goals, make you know, some saves. It's yeah. now.
1: Time's, the time is now. <laughs> and also, don't take our advice uh, too heartily. Yeah, uh, that too. Your, your mum should make the decision of where you should grow up also. I think it's a no. important part of this. No, it's three podcasters. Oh, we've been given the responsibility. Very good. Mm-hmm. We have the mandate, H. Move where you like. Very good. Uh, thank you very much for listening to questions. Uh, TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions if you'd like to submit them. We very much appreciate that. And once again, Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show for our bonus content. We wish Graham Rutherford all the very best in his recovery from his latest malady but for now taylor quail thank you very much thank you my friend uh,
2: and they are not in the eu by the way so you are correct Ryan. yes
1: nailed it i knew they had some kind of economic
3: arrangement nerdy stuff joe thank you very much indeed <laughs> thank you ryan i am now just concerned the end of this episode got heavy now we're responsible for the fate of another human being is mm-hmm. this what you guys feel like all the time as parents i'm not i'm not used to this it's it's burdensome
1: yeah i it's feel ending. that I do, yeah,
3: Joe. I would love to give you a light-hearted answer. The answer is yes, one
1: hundred percent. That is pretty cool, much cool, how cool. it feels.
2: Yes, yeah.
1: On that fun note, listener, thank you again for joining us. We'll be back on the feed very shortly with some Jude Bellingham goodness. Another spoiler alert, but for now, bye.